Hello and welcome to the Eloquent in the Room podcast, episode 20. Yes, we have reached another O. We did it. I'm so proud of us. Uh, by the way, I'm Rose Cooper. <laughs> How you doing? This is also episode six or part six of an ongoing series called Adulting Consent. We've been covering the topic of consent from a lot of different angles over the last few weeks. So if you haven't tuned into those, do go back and have a listen. In the meantime, we're going to be talking about how best to teach adults how to teach children about consent. So to get us into the mood for that, Simon says, sit the fuck down and listen to this podcast. When I first started laying the groundwork for this podcast, I did so thinking that there were quite a few holes in public perception that I needed to fill. And I was also on the lookout for people who could fill my holes of perception. But one very big thing on my agenda was how do we change the way we educate children, not only about sexuality, but also about emotional intelligence. See, I was a child who grew up in a very dysfunctional environment and had the traumatic events of my childhood happen to me this decade that has just passed as opposed to the 1970s, I would undoubtedly have received at least some counselling. Myself and my siblings would have at least some recognition that many of our feelings of insecurity and inadequacy that we had growing up had a root cause that we could point our finger at. And I can say with absolute certainty that a whole stack of self-destructive behaviours that I possessed in my teenage years and in my early 20s probably would never have emerged in me. But back in those days, children didn't have a language for what we were going through and we were essentially gagged. The things we as children were experiencing were apparently inconsequential, unimportant. They were definitely inconvenient and embarrassing. They were whispered about. They were the essence of taboo. We as children had no concept of personal boundaries because the adults around us wouldn't have known a boundary if it was vomiting in their morning cornflakes. We all know better now, at least that's the hope. That word boundaries is well and truly in the vernacular now. We all know what it means as adults, don't we? Hmm? Don't we? No? Oh, for fuck's sake, Google it, will you? During this series on consent, I've been shining a light on people who live for the concept of boundaries and connection and communication that reside around consent, particularly between adults and particularly about sexuality. And during the course of this, I have had this thought in the back of my mind that wouldn't it be great if there was a really comprehensive sort of boundary teaching thing out there for kids? And no sooner did that idea pop into my head. And I saw a post that was shared on the Wheel of Consent Instagram It was a post by a vivacious New Yorker by the name of Sarah via her Instagram handle, Comprehensive Consent. Oh, I like the sound of that. 
It's comprehensive. So I investigated further. Now, the thing with Instagram is you cannot throw a metaphorical rock without metaphorically hitting a whole bunch of experts in the field of sexuality and all things clitoris related and vulva related and consent related. Not all of these accounts are qualified. Some are just selling vibrators and whatnot, and some people aspire to educate but are not yet qualified. So it does take a lot of sort of sorting through the wheat to get to the chaff, or is it the other way around? Anyway, but wow, Sarah's page just blew me away. Think about it. Adults who use Instagram and follow hashtags looking for information to help them navigate mysterious taboo topics have never had it so good. But you know, what about kids? Not just savvy TikTok teens, but what about children? Uh, Parents are understandably worried about their kids being exposed to porn, about social media, but we have to face the fact that that ship has sailed. There's no way to slay that dragon, but we can minimize harm. How? By teaching kids about boundaries, body autonomy, consent, comprehensively, from a very young age. We're not even talking about sex ed, just foundational things like boundary setting. Wow, when I reflect on my childhood, I know for sure that if I knew what boundaries were, I would have known what love actually looked like. I would have recognized manipulation and coercion and grooming a mile away. How different some of my sexual mishaps and such might have been. How different some of my friendships and relationships would have looked. How differently I would have lived my life. How differently, definitely, I would have parented my three sons because seriously, I haven't always been the best example for them to follow. But luckily, they turned out to develop not only healthy boundaries, but also are feminists who genuinely give a shit about the world around them and whom, for the most part, understand their cis male white privilege. Or they do their best to remain vigilant around recognizing it. But this is a best case scenario. Indeed, it's a bit of a fluke if you ask me. You can probably hear in my voice a certain emotional component to this particular preamble, this episode. Recent events in the Australian political arena and high-profile tragedies that have occurred recently locally and internationally serve to remind us of just how many violent crimes against women are committed every fucking day. Every hour of every day, every minute of every hour of every fucking day. And it reminds me to never be complacent. The statistics speak for themselves. I personally have been so blessed with the people who I have met and clicked with on Instagram who have agreed to be interviewed about consent. As with previous interviews, I went into it without writing a list of questions, but with Sarah, I had particular curiosity about what inspired her to want to go down this particular path, to see where we had similarities. The path of coaching parents and teachers about how to talk to children of all ages about consent and personal boundaries, as well as working directly with children herself. This this is a calling. This is a vocation. This is important work. And she's a fucking natural at it. So I wanted to know where that came from. Interestingly, this question inadvertently kicked up the topic of religion for the first time in all of these 20 episodes. (laughs) 
Um, it's not like we get too deeply philosophical about religion, but I realized during and afterwards that religion is where I have the biggest blind spot when it comes to the topic of sexuality and consent and the whole darn shooting match because I was raised by agnostics. Um, this religious guilt trip thing was never my cross to bear. Oh, that's where that saying came from. Um, my problem with boundaries and consent issues as I was growing up had zero to do with religion. It was just about society and my parents who were stitched up by their own hang-ups and fucking their childhood shit. Um, so it's a definitely, religion is definitely a conversation that's been missing so far. So if you're particularly religious, that is your content warning or content note. Maybe keep your finger poised on the skip 30 seconds option while you listen to the podcast if you want to avoid that particular rabbit hole we briefly venture into. But please, by all means, keep listening to the podcast. I could have cut this chat into two portions like I have previously. But because of the very specific nature of it and the targeted audience, I'm expecting that mostly interested people like um, parents and teachers would be more interested in listening to this. I have edited out all the extraneous bits to keep it as short as possible, even though we did talk for a couple of hours. I was very self-indulgent with our talk. Um, I was asking her all sorts of stuff and picking her brains, which... Probably wasn't relevant stuff for my listeners. Um, so yeah, this is the nuts and bolts of the conversation. What remains is an invigorating discussion between Sarah and myself about her programs, which I believe are absolutely essential components to any personal development curriculums aimed at school-aged human beings. And a quick heads up, this is not the best sound quality. We didn't have the best connection, so apologies for that. Now, without further ado, with your consent, I will play this interview. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved in this kind of work? Uh, oh, where to start the journey? Briefly, I do think it's important that I grew up in a Jewish Orthodox home. She said Jewish Orthodox. Also very supportive and emotionally aware parents. It's very interesting to be in an environment where you are told you loved, you are supported. My parents came... My parents both worked and both came to every soccer game of mine that they could. And I'm one of five. So that is very impressive. I'll say. Um, yeah. So to that, but then to also have this book of laws that says what your body is and is not allowed to do and how your purpose is to worship God. Um, and so I, I think that dichotomy kind of, set me up for something interesting ahead, especially being kind of like a psychologically minded person, just because that's what makes sense to my brain. Mm. That's kind of the the very beginning. I went to went through school, got a degree in psychology, um, went to school to become a psychologist, learned very quickly that's not what I wanted to do. Okay. A specific reason what what sort of stood out to you that you're going the wrong path? Yeah, there were there were two things. The first was Oh, well, actually, I was, I interpreted that differently. I was going to answer the question, any reason why you didn't want to, but you're mm. asking, is there anything that made me realize I didn't want to? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The, how I realized I didn't want to was just tuning into my body. I didn't have a, I, I wasn't, I was excited about the classes. I wasn't, I was already seeing clients my first semester. I wasn't excited about the clients. 
Oh, okay. I found it to be very like a checkbox. Mm. Um, and when I explored further, there was something about, I didn't like the dynamic, the power dynamic of they were looking at me like I had the answers. Mm. And I knew I didn't, but I still didn't feel comfortable being in a position where someone thought that of me. Mm. So that was piece number one. And then piece number two is my friend who is earning her doctorate this year. Um, Molly St. Dennis said it great. She said, Sarah, I think this is a little too serious for you. All right. And I just, I absolutely laughed in her face because I was like, you are correct. Like fun and games and energy and doing therapy is not that. You can have a degree and and go on to do things that are that, but you got to go through a lot of the not high energy stuff first, at least in the States. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, I traveled a little bit. I became a yoga teacher and I also discovered acro yoga. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's not familiar, it's an acrobatic practice where instead of using like trapeze or an aerial silk, you're you're working with someone else's body to create stunts and tricks. Mm. And through that, I started to realize that the conversations I was having in acro yoga were the same conversations that I wanted people to be having on dates and in the bedroom. So things like, have you tried this before? Are you comfortable with this? Yeah. Do you need any other safety measures, precautions in place? Mm. And then while you're actually doing it, checking in, how does it feel? Are you ready to move on to the next stage in this flow? Um, All those little things. I'm like, Oh my God, these are how this is, the connection, it, it absolutely was like a lightning bolt moment. How far, how like, far into doing it did that correlation hit you? I was practicing pretty like regularly, like going to at least a class a week, probably for about a year. Oh, yeah. Were you in mid pose when it sort of? <laughs> I was at Washington Square Park. In New York City, and I, I well. was with yeah. Uh, there you go. And yeah. I was with my two my two like closest acro friends, Colleen and Alondra, and and I, I literally it was like we were laying on the grass, and all of a sudden, like I come up, I go, guys, this is this is what for sex. This is what I like couldn't get the words out. All right, um, <laughs> and and they were like they kind of they know I have sometimes big ideas and and they were like yeah yeah totally but like I couldn't get it out of my head now I I can't stop seeing through this lens of consent is this day thing that has nothing to do about sex and everything to do about communication yeah when people get it it's so nice to have conversations and unpick it even further but when when people are still sort of no it's sort of like it's deflating and 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 soul destroying when when you feel like that that connection isn't being made yeah yeah they were they were like they agreed with me but they just weren't like this excited you know yeah um, anyway continue that journey yeah yeah and so with my background in psychology and mostly working with kids and skill building um and having now this understanding of or this idea of breaking down consent into these skills that don't have anything to do with sex I came up with was a workshop that I was going to offer to my 
um, like private Jewish school that I went to when I was a child where I could talk, teach about consent, where it had nothing to do with sex. Mm. Aren't into it. They said they'd think about it. Things came up. They never got back to me. I kind of kept on, I had this in the back of my head and I, it eventually it changed from this, what was going to be one workshop based in acro yoga for my high school slowly but surely has become what is now comprehensive consent it's comprehensive. which uh is my company that's basically devoted to being consent an understanding of consent that is nuanced and about co- communication as opposed to about sex into as many schools and homes as possible and the i now it, there's not an acro yoga component just be mostly because of accessibility, mm. I would offer a workshop for sure. Mm. But I want to make sure it's it's ac- accessible and interesting. So the, I should say, the Acro Yoga workshop is still like at the heart of where, that's part of the seed. But yeah. now it's very much based in, in activities and games and stories and metaphors and analogies for just understanding consent differently mm. um, and focusing really on the social and emotional piece of it. Mm-hmm. about how it's not just how to ask, how to accept a no, or how to ask for consent, but like asking for consent is really hard. Saying no is hard. Hearing mm-hmm. a no is hard. And mm-hmm. preparing for what that situation looks like mm-hmm. so you can navigate through it as best as possible because there are no directions because every situation is different. Yeah. There's a different power dynamic. You're in a different mood that day than the moment, than the day before, the moment before very much based in mindfulness and uh, social emotional learning. Yeah, I think that the biggest lesson I learned just as a, a human being in relationships was just, I think I ended up having an argument, I've been married twice, um, with my first husband and he he came home in a bad mood or all this sort of stuff and I was like, wrong, is there anything wrong? And I was immediately trying to find out what I had done wrong to put him in this mood. And at one stage he's like... I'm just in a bad mood. Sometimes you've just got to let that go. I'm just in a bad mood. So, um, and oh gosh, how old was I then when we had that conversation? I was definitely in my mid-20s at some stage. And I remember having the dual realisation, yes, he's right. I don't have to own his moods or know when um, if I've done something he'll tell me or whatever rather than continually trying to find guilt in every situation um but also why don't we know this why isn't this something that my mother told me when I was a kid or you know this to me it's a really fundamental thing is that ownership of who you are and how you affect the outside world and what, how much of it is just um, feeling of rejection? All of all of these things, as you were just saying, just just understanding that when two people interact, there's two universes <laughs> at play, and in very rare moments, those u- universes commingle, and it's a beautiful thing. But for the most part, we are completely and utterly independent in our thought and our feelings and our every single process, and we can't just open our skulls and swap brains and <laughs> and help each other understand who. I think just one of the hardest parts is that for so many adults, they still haven't learned this. Yeah. And so how can they, like, honestly, how can they be expected to teach it to their kids? And so that's where it 
comes down to both parent education and also education in schools Mm. so that they do have that understanding growing up and can bring it into their homes. Yeah, I think that's what people... Um, people who object to um, sex education being taught in schools or people who object to the age at which or or want to dictate the age at which these conversations start. I think they should start right at the very beginning um, uh, because they have this blanket rule that this is a conversation that parents should have with their children, but they're overlooking the fact that not every parent knows everything not every parent is good at communicating these things and not every parent feels um, uh, comfortable. So you've got all those barriers against this actually happening at home and, gosh, you know, it's a bin fire. It's just really like people are just ignoring it. Bin fire. I would say dumpster fire. I love it. Yeah, well, it just, I don't know why, I don't know why that particular image popped into my head. I love it. (laughs) It feels like it's in a bin, it's still on fire. People think, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's not going to, that's not going to get out of control. It's all good. I take such issue, not even with the consent piece, but not expected to teach your child math. You're expected that they go to school, they learn about it, and then they ask questions to you maybe if they need your, a different perspective. Yeah. But how can you expect to, to teach or even be, especially when it comes to the human body where there's advances and we're learning new things every day. You're staying up to date on the research, mom? I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> How are you going to teach them about different methods of birth control? When's the last time you were on birth control? You're in menopause. Like, <laughs> or, you know, you know what I mean? Or you're Absolutely. Uh, a lesbian and you've never mm. had to worry about birth control, like whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it drives me wild that sex edu- that people think sex education is something for the home. Yeah. Only. So initially you got a bit of resistance. At what point did you feel, uh, were you able to actually, I wish I had a better word for it, sell the idea of what you're doing and get people to jump on board with it? It didn't happen until, well, I was still working a part-time job mm-hmm. and at an, at an office um, in organizational psychology. And I was teaching kids yoga on the side as well. I was very much doing the gig thing. And then I was working on this, but there was no urgency behind it. All right. Uh, yeah, no urgency behind it. Eventually, I did decide to play around with the idea of cold emailing schools without any website. Any I sent them from my, G, my regular Gmail account. Um, and I had one school who was interested. And so I created a workshop. I mean, I created the workshop before I pitched it, but I refined it, mm. uh, hosted it, and I thought it went pretty well. And this was on Valentine's Day of 2020, and pandemic hit. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. Yep. And so I was like, well, doing a workshop that's heavily experiential is not going to be a thing that's taking place anytime soon. So um, between that and then also my work, with kids yoga and with my office job being cut down, I had a lot of free time on my hands and, and I don't, I don't sit still very well. So I, I got to work thinking like. Is that so a New York whole, thing? <laughs> it is. It very much is. Very Go much on. is. I, I got to work thinking about um, if kind of like they talk about your why. My why was that I wanted kids to understand how to practice these skills and how for it to become second nature before 
they it had anything to do with sex. And so I didn't necessarily need the workshop. The workshop was the how. I didn't need that. I could find a different how. Yeah. And so that's where I decided to create something that was now that I had like at least a little bit of proof of concept, this something for students was mostly made already. And so I got to work doing that. And eventually um, I wasn't doing any other work, still not. And I decided that I'm going to launch this company and figure it out as I go. Mm. It's, been, it's been fun and yeah. I've been getting good feedback. So yeah. What made you um, come up with that phrase? comprehensive consent because it could be in some ways a little bit foreboding for some people who just think oh it's too much to learn (laughs) just because it's got the word comprehensive in front of it that didn't scare me away from that because I thought that was important yeah I think it's really easy to think you understand consent and I don't think actually a lot of people do Mm. I think it's very much, there was the movie that just came out recently called Promising Young Woman yeah yeah it It is yeah I have seen it You've t- you got to be prepared for, t- for it. So without any spoilers, mm. oh, yes, you have to be prepared for it. And without any spoilers, they very much talk about the, like, there's, you see the idea of the good guy, putting yeah. good guy in quotes. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to consent, have that understanding that they're a good guy, that they practice consent. But that's because they, they really believe that they do, mm. but they don't. Mm. They don't know what it is. When someone calls them out for not practicing consent, they're like, what? No, that's not mm. true. And they, they get very defensive. Mm. Um, and so mm. I really wanted comprehensive consent in there to be very clear that like, it's like consent is all I talk about. This isn't like a, a two minute video on consent and tea that you can like yeah. add to your sex education workshop. Like there's a lot to go into here. There's a lot of components because we're talking about two people when it comes to boundary setting, not that that's not in, in itself a ton, Mm. I'm talking about boundary setting, mm. but also <laughs> pleasure and also yeah. asking yeah. and also withdrawing consent. And also, yeah. you know, there's so, there's so much to it. And I, I stand by that. So I think that's where um, that came from. Yeah. I don't want to bring gender into it and, and I, but you, you kind of have to, uh, how does that play out when you're doing your workshops and you're talking to classes of, uh, boys and girls is there ever any differentiation between boys and girls in that in that work I could answer that the the workshop the in-person workshop that I did was at an all-girls high school yeah so I didn't have that experience Mm. um is it something you think uh, about incorporating or yeah I when I talk about gender I I talk about gender like this. There are very clear sexual violence statistics and there are certain gender norms that are put onto us in society. Yeah. Every person of, regardless of gender, needs to know all consent skills from asking to responding and everything in between. That's the baseline. From there, is it likely that guys will, boys will need more, um, instruction and support over asking and rejection Mm. probably yeah will women need more support in the boundary setting piece or girls more need more support in the boundary setting piece possibly I hope that we get to a place and I hope that in some homes or in some communities you know it's how much those gender norms play out will vary Mm. 
and when they start to practice consent will vary. And so I don't teach gen specifically content for boys and specifically content for girls because a, where does that leave the non-binary folks? Yeah. Um, and because B, I really like I, and I think it helps almost that I am a very confident woman mm. because, and I'm, and I'm delivering this. And so I do feel like I can be a model of, yeah, you could say like, you can say no, like you can stand up for what you want. It's very different than a man telling them that they can say no and they can stand up for things. Um, and I'm very, I try to be very aware of how I am modeling consent while also teaching consent in terms of how I'm talk, how the boys then perceive me, I think hopefully is also, I, you know, I try to be a model of how to treat someone who says no and what the difference between authority and not authority is. Mm. Um, and get into all those little complexities, not just in when I'm talking to them, but in when I'm interacting with them. Mm. Um, so that's kind of how how I've conceptualized gender and how it plays out as I continue to to grow in this. We'll see. Mm. Yeah. So with your programs um, or what you've compiled so far, do you feel like you've you've created a uh, a space um, where you deliver a message? Um, and it helps you, you know, the limits of that and you can work within the limits of that or do you ever find that um, it's each, each session that you might have might end up being an organic situation in which you may find a new conversation to have with, with young people about things? The conversation can go in many places, but I most of what I do is actually is not conversation based when I'm in the room with kids mm. it's experiential okay so so for example like I have um a game where you go you have to go around the room keep asking people for a hug and the rule is you have to say no mm. so they get kind of practice in asking and being rejected but then we go to the next level which is okay now the person's going to give you a Hershey kiss or so you're going to give them a Hershey kiss Mm -hmm. then you're going to say, can I have a hug? And they're going to say no. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the idea of like, you owe someone something because someone just gave you something. And how is that different? Okay. And so it's very much about like trying out these different roles and feeling these different experiences in your body and then talking about them. So the talking about it can lead to different conversations. Um, but it's pretty set up in terms of like, all right, time for the next game. Whereas like with just conversation, your transitions need to be a little bit smoother. I find, mm. <laughs> um, unless you're like next topic, maybe. Mm. Um, but if, but I'm, it's very like, all right, game debrief, game debrief. Um, because especially with, with, you know, kids or high schoolers, even like their attention spans mm. are not super long. So I teach for that and I, I want them to be engaged. And again, I want them to feel it in their body and not just think about experiences they've had in the past, mm. but now they have this shared experience to talk about. Yeah. And do you observe um, the little light bulb go on, whether it's a child or a teenager or whatever, or do you, do you sense when it's, when it's hitting home or, or when it's not? When it's just not getting, <laughs> they're not getting. Yes. Mm. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Trial and error, you're always going to learn something, but you think mm. it's a brilliant idea. You try it out. It's not the idea that you thought was okay. Turns out that's the light bulb moment. Yeah. So how do you feel going into it? Seeing as that you are working, you're workshopping your workshops as you, as you go. I, I have so much admiration for what you do um, because you are, you're, you're breaking new ground with what you do. It's like you're very uh, passionate and you believe in the core message <laughs> that you're getting across. Um, but learning out, learning what's going to work is something you kind of need to step back from. And I, I'm not sure how well I do it stepping back from a, an idea that I had and thought was going to work and to see it, it doesn't work. So how does that sort of, how do, how do you feel while, while it's happening? You know, like what are your feels doing? I've had a good amount of practice in stepping back. Mm. Um, and so I'm pretty good at it. I actually, the entire, you can tell from my Instagram, the entire month of January was devoted to, to was leading up to this launch of a program called Parenting for Healthy Relationships, mm. a one-to-one program. And while I was launching with it, I was working with a client one-to-one as a case study slash guinea pig. And she knew she was in that. We did like a super reduced price for her. And I was like, I want to, before I do it for my full price, full launch, I want to, you know, make sure I know what I'm offering. Mm. It's now to a month and a half later, I don't offer the program. Oh, okay. I spent a month working up to this. Okay. I worked with my case study client and she got a lot out of it. It was not what I thought it was. Mm. It's it's not something you can, you can tell. It is tell not you. what I do best and no. not aligned with my mission. It's great. Yeah, it's it's it just, it wasn't right. Mm. Um, and so I had to step back from it and it was just like, I'd rather do that than for something that doesn't work. Mm. Um, you know, I, I left, I left a side, I left the top doctoral program in the country. I shouldn't say top, top side program in the country. Yeah. I also left college my first semester. I went back, but I was, had mental health things going on and I left and came back. And I think I, you know, you have enough of those experiences or I, I left Judaism. Mm. <laughs> you have enough of those experiences. You're like, I'm doing this, but it's not working out. Like I'm out. It's boundary setting. Yeah. Where where did you learn to set boundaries? What was what was your first experience with the concept of boundaries? I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, I have four older brothers, mm. and I've always been uh, a little feisty, is what I've been told. Spunky was the word used a lot. <laughs> Words that I give can't... girls. It's me being very personal in this interview right now, asking you how how do you keep that forward movement, keep that pilot light going? I think the answer is accountability. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is that don't always stay on track or I don't always go, you know, as I don't always stay on track and I don't also always go as, as, you know, fast as I want to go. So to the first point of not staying on track is I had this, this big launch, right? I worked super hard on it. I can't, I don't want to think about how many hours I put into to the content created behind it. And Mm -hmm. it was a learning process. So I'm still so happy. I'm still happy about it, but I could have kept going that down that path and just been like, it'll work. It's important. It's going to be good. I'll just fix it. And because I didn't want to admit that I was wrong. 
And I think learning to, to notice when something doesn't feel right and take a look and then take action according, accordingly allows that when you're going down a path and you go far, far away, it's a lot harder to come back to it. But if you only go a little bit off the path, it's easier to get back. Mm. And so I kind of just try to make sure that when I make decisions, they're in line with it. And if they're not, the way back is a lot smoother. Mm. Um, And in terms of not going as fast, that's a simple just remembering like from when I first had the idea to when I actually did the workshop was like a year and a half. Um, And that's just remembering that you're not losing, losing sight of the path if, you know, you got to work a job to support yourself while you're on this passion project. So you'll go a little slower, but you're still on the path. Yeah. So along your journey between studying and, and coming to forming your own ching uh, and all this sort of stuff, at which point did you get in contact with Betty or, or discover Betty or the, the other way around? How did that work? How did that come to be? I discovered Betty after I had already became incorporated um, probably through Instagram and it, it just clicked. It made so much sense. At first I looked at the wheel and I thought it looked very overwhelming, mm-hmm. but I listened to a podcast that Betty did where she talks about it and it, it just blew my mind. I was like, this is incredible. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't implement it. I implement some of the concepts behind it with kids I implement it more in my own personal life. I haven't quite figured out if, if or how the wheel works with kids. Mm. I guess because um, uh, our brains aren't supposed to fully uh, form, particularly in the frontal lobes and, uh, you know, consequences, all that sort of stuff, t- till we're in our early 20s. So it would be, be hard to have the notion of forethought how have you divided the age of children and the concepts you're bringing to the table? Like um, we call them infant school. I think it's uh, prep. I'm not sure what you call it in America. It's uh, age five to eight. Like Oh, kindergarten. Oh, yeah. Uh, elementary school? Elementary, yeah. Then grammar and then high school, isn't it? Yeah, so we, we're like infant school, primary, and then secondary school, so or high school. Um, so, yeah, is, uh, how do you feel the uh, the differences or the what what sets apart, for instance, um, that elementary and elementary and grammar school? What's the what's the basic difference there between kids' cognitive abilities and what you're wanting to teach for elementary school? Yeah. yeah. I won't go in and teach to them myself. Um, I will teach the teachers because me going in means absolutely nothing. There's no connection. There's going to be no reinforcement. Um, I, I'm, I'm fun. I've, I, I've worked with little kids a ton. I, I teach kids yoga and I, I could theoretically teach them some mindfulness. Um, but I can't really effectively in you know an hour session it would have to be like six Mm. for them to know who I am and understand what I do and even with that it would I would still really need the teachers on board reinforcing it in the child's play 
Mm. So that's, that's kind of what I, what I have planned for teachers is for the younger kids. I teach you, you teach them Mm. because they know you, they're going to be reinforced by you. They have a relationship with you. You see what's going on. You know what they need. Yeah. So they use what you teach them. Um, And then at a day on a day-to-day basis of just bringing those ideas and concepts to kids on a, you know, like, or do they actually work lessons around it specifically? Both. All right. Both. There are specific lessons and games that um, that teach them, you know, ideas. There's like a game with like scenarios, and you can say like yes, no, or I don't know. And the question is like, did like, do you think they got consent? And then they go to like the green if they think yes. They go to the yellow if I don't know. The red if no. And then like have a conversation about that. So they're moving around, they're moving their bodies. It's very gamified, but I'm not leaving that. The teacher is Mm -hmm. because then again, like the teacher kids can then, it's the cutest thing that kids, one of my favorite thing about kids is that they talk to you about people that you don't know as if you know them. Mm -hmm. They'll like to be like, so my friend Lucy, remember how she ate spaghetti today? And you're like, I, no, why would I remember that? I'm adult. I wasn't in your yeah. class, but they, but they don't, they don't have theory of mind. So they don't yeah, realize that you don't mm. know something. Mm. So with a teacher, they're more likely to understand what the child is talking about, what their context is, what their family life is. And they can just integrate it better for a child who again, can't fully express themselves or know what someone else is expressing. Um, and so there's specific, you know, games around it. And then there's also, um, teaching about like, what is body autonomy? Why is it important? What do you do when with little kids who especially like, it's not about, it's definitely not about sex at all. They're pushing someone on the playground. How do you talk about consent? Then someone's poking someone in class. Someone wants a hug. Someone wants to hold someone's hand to the playground. These are all like everyday examples of how do you integrate consent into those encounters? Yeah. And for grammar school, it's a lot different because um, teachers aren't doing that with their kids. Mm. It'd be really inappropriate for them to like um, with a sixth grader, you know, talk about or I shouldn't say it's inappropriate. I don't think the kids would want it mm. for their teacher to be like getting into their friend group business. They think they know everything. Yeah. Um, and so then is when it is a little more appropriate for someone new to come in. I'm not your annoying teacher. Mm. I can, I can use my energy. I use like video, I use like clips from movies. I use games to make it um, interesting and fun. And it is a requirement that the teachers are present. That isn't like their hour break while I go teach um, so that they can also integrate it where it's possible. But the biggest piece is, is for the kids themselves to understand so they can talk to each other about it as opposed to talking to their teacher. Um, and then eventually I have not worked on this at all, but I would love to implement a peer to peer program. Cause that I think would be even more effective for like an eighth grader to a sixth grader. Mm. I think, I think that would be, I think an eighth grader yeah. would be more influential than me. They've, yeah. They've automatically got the sixth graders attention <laughs> yeah. Yeah. just by being right. And so it's real, it's realizing where your influence lies and like what, how much you can do I can go into the, you know, second grade classroom fine, Mm. but it won't stick. So what's the point? Yeah. 
Do you find that with teaching um, parents or or adults or or teachers um, these concepts, is there uh, a space for the idea that uh, because the first thing that comes to my mind as a parent as well um, and just observing other parents and, and things that we teach children because we think we're teaching kids the right thing. And the thing that sticks out to me is the sharing concept. Like kids have a toy and parents bully their children into sharing the toy because it's supposed to teach some kind of generosity to children. It's, It's like this is a word to them. Share is a word, particularly really, really young kids. Share is a word for giving someone, you know, doing something I don't want to do. <laughs> it's, it's really, it seems when you, when you're an adult and you th- really think about it, you think, actually, that's really basic. What, what are we doing? Why are we doing that? How much of unlearning are you sort of bringing up when you approach these things, even from the get-go? 90% of what I do is, I would, if not a hundred percent is unlearning because mm. we, whether we realize it or not, we, we learned about consent when we were young. And if you didn't have consent education, you learned consent didn't matter. Yeah. So you learned something by not learning something. Mm. Um, And so it's, it's so much unlearning. I do not say you must share. There are, in fact, I encourage that kids have certain toys that they don't have to share no matter what. Mm. And other toys where, um, you know, a parent can set the rules about, okay, in in 10 minutes, it'll be time for them to have that toy, but you still have your special toys that it doesn't matter how much, like, unless if you want to play with it and you don't want to share it, you don't have to. Mm. Um, because yeah, I'm totally with you. Like there are some things I do have to share, like the TV. When I grew up with four older brothers, I have to share that with everyone. That's not mine. But yeah. why do I have to share the Barbie that I got for my birthday? Mm. They never wanted to share that, but, you yeah. know, theoretically. Yeah. The difference <laughs> um, between compromise and self-sacrifice. Yes, and I, in fact, um, I, in fact, use the word collaboration mm. very intentionally um, because when it's compromise, you kind of each get something. So from the TV example, you know, I get to watch the end of my show, but then um, – you know, and my brother has to wait. Um, and then it's his turn. So I don't get to watch anymore, but now he's happy. Mm. Whereas if we collaborate, it could be that there's a TV show we both want to watch. And so you kind of, um, broaden the scope of the problem Mm. to create a solution, because I think that's what happens sometimes in touch too, that people compromise instead of collaborating. Yeah. So you want to have sex. I only want to make out. So let's meet in the middle. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not how that works. That's not a compromise that I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Um, whereas if you collaborate, you get to the root of what does each person want? And mm-hmm. each person wants, let's say it's connection or each person wants uh, to be held. And they think that kissing is the only way they get it. And the other person thinks that sex is the only way they get it. And yeah. it turns out they cuddle and they're both happy. Yeah. Um, you know, that's an ideal situation. Who knows if that happens, but um you're just using the word compromise brought that up for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally understand. And, and fundamentally um, the things that I've discovered just 
as a as a human being and getting older and and growing into my own body autonomy and and like um the entire premise of uh me starting the podcast was the fact that I have been able to compare times in my life between relationships and before and after where I was sexually active. <laughs> it sound like we were running at the same time. Um, and um, when I, so when my late teens, my mid thirties and my early fifties, these three completely different part, times of my life and also different times in the history of uh, this, you know, sexual revolution and 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 how uh, consent changed, how much more empowered I was in my thirties, how much more assertive I was in my thirties, but also how I kind of centered things around my ego. I was very insecure. Then to be over fifty and feel so uh within my rights to halt anything at any stage to say no to anything at any stage to ask for things to set out the ground rules at the at the beginning to um call people out when they were being um in any way uh hurtful or you know just just but it took my whole life to get there and i always feel like oh what can i do now now that i know this stuff what can i do um so knowing that you're going right back to the the beginning and and getting kids to just learn that self-awareness and compassion and empathy and rejection and all of these things that we learn later have words attached to them but you're teaching them these things as concepts without needing words attached yeah. to them. It's a personal question how much of what you're doing is driven by personal experiences where you wish you know whether whether you had had like whether it was heartbreak or, or other things that have happened in your life that um, give you a an, a greater sense of purpose because you feel that there's something that you discovered through that pro- like discovered through that process that made what you're doing make so much sense now and give you so much purpose very good question my dad asked something very similar he goes did we do something to you that I'm not aware of (laughs) I was like no 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 you're good I I really think uh, autonomy has always been something that was very important to me like it, it always just made sense to me and I think that's why I had a lot of issues with the religion in which I was raised um because within any religion you're not making the rules and the rules aren't based based in ethics alone they're based in ethics plus some other arbitrary things mm-hmm. and some non-ethical things. And I think that really set me up for like that internal struggle of, and again, but again, having that support. So being told my voice was important, but at the same time being told it wasn't that, that mixed messaging, Yeah, uh, I think really laid the groundwork. There isn't one experience that I can point to growing up that, that has defined this it's Mm. I think it's like a lot of little experience where I was just like that doesn't make sense Mm. that doesn't make sense I don't like that why do I have to wear I couldn't understand why I had to wear skirts to school Mm. I I had to and I that was not comfortable for me I wanted to like sit on the floor with like my legs out and Mm. I couldn't Mm. and it, it just I think something in every person I really believe from the time that they're born that knows that their body belongs to them Mm. and then we're taught that it doesn't 
Yeah. And so I think my experience was exaggerated, but because of religion or exaggerated in some way because of religion, but it's the thing you live in always. It's the only thing that's literally yours. Yeah. Your government owns your house. If you have like yeah. your, or the bank does, if you have a mortgage and you can move cities, you can move states. As far as I know, you can't move out of your physical body in the world in which we live. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a lot of coming back to that directness of, mm. no, you get to choose your body. You have to be kind to people Yeah. and you're going to experience hard emotions, but your body is yours so long as it doesn't infringe upon the rights of others. Yeah. It's a, I, I grew up, my parents were agnostic or atheist or whatever. So I have this interesting sort of cognitive dissonance or whatever towards um, how much religion can actually affect people's um, uh, uh, sense of, you know, the rules because the, the rules never made sense to me. But I had other rules imposed upon me that were just, you know, the usual garden variety, sexist, old-fashioned views about what I should be doing with my life and my role uh, in, in, in the family unit. And, and you know, no, I wasn't taught to have any sort of aspirations or stuff. And um, on Instagram, there's uh, a few people that are doing um, stuff that's specifically about purity culture, which is obviously religious-based and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I was kind of a lawless teenager, <laughs> Grew up in the 70s or my, you know, sexual awakening was in the 70s and late 70s um, where I knew that sex was my thread. I still compl- didn't completely piece together the level of empowerment and body ownership that I should have, but I still felt that uh, I shouldn't be discriminated against or vilified for wanting to have sex with people or how many partners that I had or, or any of that stuff. So I find it, um, it's an interesting blind spot for me when I'm dealing with wanting to talk about sex and, and educate people about their empowerment and stuff is that, um, and even having s- a- a- interactions with men in my thirties and stuff where I was the more assertive partner and, and thinking about it years later and thinking, how much of me specifically thinking all men want sex was driving my my interactions and how much of some of those situations were men going along with the fact that, oh, this woman wants to have sex with me, okay, and they could have had a religious upbringing and thought, I, I just want to get to know her better. <laughs> There's so much that I have that's a gap in that regard. So it's interesting to know that the fight that I had was uh, for autonomy and to be taken seriously, and that was purely a social thing. It was never a, a, never fighting against any kind of uh, religious doctrine or rules or, or whatever. So I'm really on the fly here, seat of my pants here. Do you remember um, times during your upbringing where you're, you're, you're learning about religion and stuff where you saw the blinding hypocrisy of or the sexism of what you were learning, did you like put your hand up in the class and like, but what about if she doesn't want to or, or whatever? Was that always yeah. there? Yeah. Yeah. That was always there. I'm also thinking now of what you said before, I'm going to answer this question, but the, the, also the interaction of religion and social issues, because I was also the more assertive one. Yeah. And when I was, as like a 17 year old rejected from a boy who I wanted to kiss mm. that to me 
so confusing because I was like, you're a boy who never gets, you know, female attention. Mm. And I just offered you a kiss. You're rejecting me. Like I must really suck. Yeah. Like where it almost hit even like there's different ways those interactions play out um, in terms of both who might be the aggressor and who is aggressing and who's going along with what, and also just the emotional implications of, of all of that. Yeah. Um, or them having shame for wanting to say yes, but also wanting to say no. And yeah, seems like it's something um, you only answer, ever figure out in retrospect. Absolutely. Judaism, luckily, as opposed to some of the other religions, um, as far as I understand, very much welcomes um, questions and contradictions. Uh-huh. So um, I have a friend who was raised Catholic and she says that she brought up things and they were like, don't say that. Don't say that. Mm. Um, where for me, it was like, interesting, let's talk about it. Mm. And it would still be in the, there would always be, you know, can't know God's will. Uh, there's a disagreement. Some rabbis say this, some rabbis say that, but they weren't shut down. It wasn't like you were questioning God. So you're shut down. It's like you can't understand it sometimes. Like, let's go down this trail as far as we can. And then we can't anymore. It's like, and sometimes we don't understand it. So it wasn't real frustration um, that I had to suppress of like speaking up. I was, I was able to do that. Um, our, our Talmud, which is kind of a commentary on the, the Torah, the Bible, the first book, mm. it's all debate. It's just rabbis debating the whole time. And we okay. learn that. And so, yeah. And so it was, it was, it was very nice to have that within it, but still the rules about like, again, like it it, it didn't, it only mattered so much that in class we were able to debate these issues because at the end of the day, the school rule wasn't going to change. So I still had Mm -hmm. to wear a skirt to school. Mm -hmm. I still had to uh, not use my computer on the Sabbath. I still Mm -hmm. had to do all of these things. Um, so there was still frustration, but at least I could in some ways talk about it yeah. openly. So you felt still, you didn't feel stymied to, as a female, to have critical thinking within that? Yes. Luckily mm. in the sect that I grew up in, um, we were, women were encouraged to be critical thinkers as much as men minus the social implications that all women feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so interesting because uh, it really only hit me just then that not only was I brought up without religion, uh, my father was quite anti-religion mm. and because um, it was mostly a wasp kind of upbringing. Uh, as a kid, you learn a lot of things because of the jokes that are told sometimes and there's you know a lot of these religious jokes and mostly it was like, um, Protestant and anti-Catholic. So, because Australia is very much um, uh, early settlement, and and that is mainly mainly from the UK and Ireland and and stuff. So those those two differentiations are, are very much at the forefront. And yeah, we had a lot a mass migration from most of different nations during gold rush periods in the 1800s, and also um, after the war, we were actually paying people to come and live here. <laughs> come a, you know it wasn't exactly a few acres and a mule but it may as well have been we we're paying people to to immigrate particularly um but that's a whole other topic but um 
What I was going to say is that um, I remember I had a friend who was brought up in Catholic school. We were both in our early 20s and she said she remembers the day she had a conversation with someone and it caused her to question her religion for the first time. And I remember my reaction to that was because I was raised anti-religious, like how could you not have questioned it from the get-go because I just had my own bias about it and, and without even really looking into it. Having said that, when I was a child, I had a friend who was religious and she had a lot of influence on me and I found that I did have kind of a spiritual vacuum in my psyche that I was like, I need something to believe in. I've now come to realise that um, human beings do have this spiritual vacuum, but it's more about just love, connection, all of these sort of things. But people are encouraged to purify that and engage it only with religion. It's like with Stockholm syndrome or, you know, abusive relationships where it, you might not realize it. And yeah. I love to talk about the first time that I like very explicitly like went against my religion mm-hmm. because it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 16, um, so my family observed the Sabbath, which means from Friday evening to Saturday night, no driving. And it's a day for family and you can hang out with friends and chat. You can read, but you can't do a lot. Yeah. And I was 16 and in a lot of rigorous courses. I was always like a, a strong student and it was Saturday and it was the summer where it feels like even longer. I was like, oh, this is, I I want to get my math homework done so I can have free time tomorrow on Sunday where like I can actually do something fun. Mm. And so the first thing I did to break religion was to do my math homework. Mm. And, and that was my rebel. That was my rebellious thing because it wasn't about, because it wasn't about this. And this is whenever my parents use the word rebellion and even still, I, I kind of, I wasn't rebelling against the religion. I was just advocating for myself and my time. Mm. Like, I was just like, what do you mean I can't do my math homework today? If I don't do my math homework today, I can't hang out with my friends tomorrow. Mm. And I can't hang out with my friends today because I can't have someone drive me to them. So why can't, like, I'm just going to do my math homework and then I'll have time tomorrow. Like, this didn't feel right. Why does someone get to choose when I get to do my math homework when I'm just bored doing nothing? Um, and, and that always just makes me laugh. Yeah. Such a rebel. And how religious were your parents? Um, pretty, pretty again, like they sent me to a school where I had classes with boys and, um, but I did have to wear skirts. Um, my dad, uh, goes to synagogue every day. Um, my mom goes to synagogue on the Sabbath. We kosher or they eat kosher. So, Mm -hmm. so pretty religious, uh, socially they are doing their best to be liberal. Mm. Like they, like my mom wants to understand what it means to be trans and like Mm -hmm. asks questions hoping to get there but also like can't she understands because bible is men and women according Mm -hmm. like as she sees it and so she can't like get past a certain point but she would still treat someone perfectly well as much as you know she can control her unconscious bias yeah um so like things like that happen but my mom if given the chance would murder our last president um so 
Well, so we got that going on. She's won me over. <laughs> yeah, right. So like again, like like like, and that's what I mean. Like they were like these supportive, in many ways, progressive, loving, accepting people. They were never like trying to make prove anyone that Judaism was right. It was just like this is what we practice. We had a Catholic nanny, and she did her thing, and we lived mm-hmm. together, and it was fine. And um, but also in the foreground was this thing of no 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 you don't get to make choices this is how it goes Mm. this is how life goes Mm. your job is to get married and have kids and wear skirts Mm. and cover your hair (laughs) whatever it's that that search for meaning and it's been you know you know rebranded over and over and over again but um uh it feels like it's a way of controlling people on one hand yeah. but on, on on the other hand there is so much good there uh, so you know just the basic fundamentals of christianity just being uh put yourself in the other person's shoes uh turn the other cheek all of this stuff which is love in action love as a verb all this sort of stuff and then you get these people who want to take a book and yep. and uh find a a, a a chapter to interpret a certain way something that was you know written via hearsay told in fables then re uh interpreted over and over and over again and we're supposed to use it in <laughs> in 2021 and uh, like why people don't just blank out at any point during that like this I don't know i I'm like, oh, I was a kid. I get why I didn't see what was happening. But mm. now as an adult, I do have what you have, I think, which was like, how do you not see this? How mm. do you not see that? This is not yeah. feminist. Like, how do you, like, I, I have those those reactions too sometimes. Yeah, there's definitely, I think there's definitely a, a swap out for, for religion. And, and uh, unfortunately, I see, um, like, spiritual i've always said i'm not religious but i'm spiritual but even then that's that's starting to be too heavily branded for me spirituality (laughs) and you know people sort of um uh crystals mandalas there's a lot of cultural appropriation happening across buddhism and taoism and, and everyone's just sort of uh it's it's but ultimately we we as as human beings and as countries and as the world we need to get back to the most basic of things and that's just being connected being mindful being kind being nice and yet capitalism Boo. is Boo. what it is so um this soapbox rant is brought to you by Sudsy like Soap. It's got no soap and no uh, substance. It's not comprehensive. Rebels <laughs> living in the sewers. <laughs> it, it feels that that sort of, you know, covert thing like, I, I believe in love. What do you believe in? Oh, I, I want to make a lot of money. So with religion, yeah. it's a question that popped up while you were talking. With religion, uh, how is that factor in when you're, approaching schools like obviously some schools are based in faith you know there's still christian values taught in some schools and and whatever so how do we get around that or how do you assimilate that what you're saying 
with what you're allowed, what the, is there schools that sort of say, you can say this, this and this, but make sure you mention God at least twice or something. There will be no mention of God in my work. That, mm. that is a hard no. If a, if a principal, you know, school psychologist, whatever, wants me to say something that I don't believe, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I, I make it very clear that I don't, this isn't sex education. I don't talk about sex, so it shouldn't come up. It's interesting that the, the topic of religion came up at all. That's, I don't ever have a list of questions when I'm interviewing because I, I love the things that come up by accident. Um, and have you had ex- experience of parents giving you feedback that they've learnt things, that you've brought something to them, not just their parenting, but also to them personally? Yeah. Yeah. That's been, that's been the most surprising, um, was I learned the word reparenting from someone who, who messaged me telling me that that's what I had kind of given them. And I've since heard that word a bunch of times in, in messages that, um, okay. my community what, what has expand, sent to me about expand how on what that now, means. Sure. So um, I think some people still have never been told that they get to decide what happens for their body. Like some adults have still never been told that or have been told that, but haven't heard that because they've been told the other message, your Mm. body doesn't belong to you so many other times. Um, So just bringing out, I know one that hit real hard for parents. I say parents, but it's mostly moms. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so one that hit home for moms was I asked the question of what was nurtured, your desires or your desirability. Mm. Mm. And that was one that I got a lot of feedback on that. It was like, oh, my desirability was nurtured. Mm. My desires were not. Now I understand. Now I have context for why I made so many of the decisions that I made because I was trying to make myself desirable Mm. instead of thinking about what I desire. And that one I know specifically was a post that hit home for a lot of people and especially people with daughters um, about, right, okay, am I teaching my daughter to be, um, how am I encouraging them to present themselves to Mm. the world or what am I giving them reinforcement on and what am I not giving them reinforcement on? the standard compliments that, they receive. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Mm. Beautiful, cute, sweet, mm. not strong, brave, smart. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. What is it that w- women are men do? I think mm. is, is the, is the phrase that okay. women are sweet, are kind, are caring and men um, like create, build, destroy. Like they, do, mm. they, so the reparenting, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. The reparenting yeah. is very much like a kind of realizing how the messages, how you, how parents were raised, and how these parents are now going to take that information um, and work with it, and I think also try to bring it into their kids' lives so the same doesn't happen there. Mm. Um, I didn't have daughters. I've got three sons, and I, I always there's part of me that would wonder if I had have had girls, would I have done a lot of overcompensating? Would I have been overprotective? Would I have been, mm. uh, you know, uh, controlling? Would I have minded my own business, you know, because my my um, radar would have been out all the time. <laughs> I just would have been, um, 
expecting to have to uh, help them navigate. Whereas raising boys, um, I took the opportunity to have conversations when the opportunity arose, like if we were watching something on TV and they would laugh at it, if it was a sexual connotation, I'd say, tell me why you found that funny because I want to know what you understand, where you're at with that. So I just, I just like look for the opportunities to have quest- ask questions and if they did start dating or whatever, um, just throw in the how do you feel about her? Is this a casual thing to you or, or whatever? And if it is a casual thing, have you had the conversation around what, what she's in it for? As it turned out, I was over, I was overcompensating. (laughs) They grew up to be feminists because they're millennials and, and Gen Z anyway. I think, um, I think it's really hard not to raise feminists these days. They're the first generation to actually laugh at what we grew up thinking and see it as ridiculous and you know why you know particularly and I'm loving the gender discussions I'm learning so much I actually pre uh preempted this interview at the end of my last podcast just sort of reflecting on the fact that as a parent I did the thing that my parents did in that um encouraging my kids when they were babies to hug people to kiss people whatever that were my friends to call them aunt and uncle or or whatever and looking back and just realizing how much of that plants a seed of the affection transaction and and not really not really learning personal boundaries from it and then it it the potential for it to go horribly wrong later in life doesn't occur to us as as parents we just we just want the approval of whoever the other adult is, by getting our child to be the go-between. There must be an interesting awareness for you of how much you're teaching parents to um, be better parents as a uh, subtext of everything you do. You're teaching parents to be better parents um, against their better judgment because the things that we do when, when we're talking about those situations not only seem harmless, they seem positive in, in our logic. You know, it's not twisted logic. It's just the way we were, we were, we were raised. Hug grandma, da, 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 you know, say thank you, da, da, you know, for things that you're not necessarily grateful for, all this sort of stuff. So it must be an interesting headspace to be in sometimes. Yeah. There's no people don't most people don't take part parenting classes mm. and so you teach what you learned. Mm. Unless you're seeking something else and anyone can become a parent. Mm. You know, <laughs> doesn't take much. You don't have to pass a test to become a parent. Mm. And so you're gonna just you're gonna take the advice that you see on Instagram because it's free as opposed to buying the book or taking the classes. And so it's really not surprising that we're, that we're kind of in this territory of generational trauma and mm. generational cycles mm. um, because of it. But that's, that's kind of where my, my course that I was taught or the program that I was talking about that I spent a month on and then abandoned um, or more than a month on. That was very much about that parent child relationship and being a parent, better parent in general. And it, that's not what I do. The consent stuff will teaching consent will help 
parents come to the, being their own better parents. Um, but teaching it directly is not, is not what I do. Mm. Um, so it, it's very adjacent and that's why I kind of veered off that path. But at the end of the day, what, what, what my mission is and where my skills lie is in really talking about navigating touch, noticing what you feel in your body, um, noticing the the messages you're sending and how behavioral psychology impacts us and how to navigate hard situations related to talking about the body, something that is so, you know, shamed generally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a hard thing to remain positive? It must there must be some times where you feel a little little bit dispirited about um how much impact it will have in the long term or, you know, given all the other influences that are around? It is. It is hard. It really is. You know, when I do happen to come across something, a story, you know, a tweet or something or something uh, or hear news that they're not teaching consent in Texas because they don't think they need it. Uh, it, it definitely is hard, but it's again, it's like, a, it's an infinite game. It's, it's, I, I can't prevent sexual assault. I can't um, guarantee consent. All I can do is increase the number of people who understand how to practice consent. Mm-hmm. So as long as I'm, I keep increasing that, then that's all, you know, that's all I can hope for. Mm. Yeah. You can do what you can do. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. I feel like we've come to a natural sort of end anyway. Do you have any like things that you want to bring up that you did you don't feel like you had a chance to to talk about? No, this was fun. I don't usually get to talk about like this other stuff. It's usually just very much about my work, but we, you know, we got the gender stuff in and the religion and reparenting. So it's been, yeah. it's been really great to to chat with you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad that you're happy that we went off track because that's kind of the way it goes with me I I splinter off into all the directions Mm -hmm. covering the topic of consent it's so nuanced and and just introducing the concept that it is nuanced and it's not simple it feels like that's where I'm finding (laughs) I'm finding a place it's like you think you know what consent means think again so yeah 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 it is it is comprehensive comprehensive you should you should do something with that word it's cool it's a cool word comprehensive <laughs> i'll think about it i'll think about yeah, it think about it yeah, and then know. you can then you can thank me after you've you're welcome, yeah, you're yeah. um sarah absolutely delightful talking to you thank you so much for giving me your time i feel so privileged um and i will add your links and everything in the show notes of the podcast so lovely so lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. So lovely. Thank you. <laughs> ah, I hope you enjoyed that. Despite the sound problems, there was some internet instability at my end. I think the sound tech at the other end wasn't that great. So I hope you bore with it as well as you could and picked up as much from it as I did. I found it all very inspiring and all very reassuring knowing that there are people like Sarah out there in the world and it's my privilege to tell you guys about it. So if you want to do everyone a solid, share her website, share this podcast, 
And if you like this podcast and you want to do something to support it, I'm not in any way earning money from this venture at the moment. Please do me a big favor and like, subscribe, comment, share it, follow me on Instagram, drop me DMs to give me some feedback. Um, it's a community, it's a networking um, and I really want to bring voices like Sarah's and Betty Martin's and Wyoli and other wonderful people who are doing the best that they can to give us a more loving, more exciting, more fulfilling and most of all safe space for us all to inhabit and <laughs> to feel good about um, cause yeah, fuck, there's not a lot going on in the world at the moment that we can feel good about, is there? Um, give yourselves the biggest hug for me until we talk again next time. I won't spoiler anything that's coming up. We're going to give the topic of consent a bit of a rest, not entirely. We're still going to be in that ballpark, but we're taking it for a bit of a walk there's some really interesting stuff coming up ahead. So please stay tuned. I love you all. Oh, and happy St. Patrick's. Takik mehr nies Jenny. Yeah, that was my feeble attempt at saying see you later in Gaelic.